0: The reason Genesis 3 is where it is, isn't just because it's in chronological order. If you're not familiar with the Bible, we call this the fall of man. And when when we're talking about falls and falling, it's important to talk about distances. If I climbed up on this podium and fell down this two and a half, three feet, I'm still pretty good, right? At worst, I got a skinned knee or I'm trying to play it off like I was trying to jump. Distance is crucial. If I'm falling from the top of a skyscraper and hitting the sidewalk 60 stories below, that's a fatal, irreparable fall. Genesis one is put right next to Genesis three because God is showing us the distance we fell. It's not a skinned knee to our relationships with him or with other people. It is a fatal, irreparable, unfixable fall in our own resources. That's why Genesis 3 happens where it is. And so keep this stuff in mind as we read this passage and as you think about uh, some of the things that we hear uh, come up tonight. So why don't you stand up and we'll jump into this passage together. Okay, hey, for the sake of time, I'm going to kind of annotate as I go and point out a few observations that I don't have time to come back to later. This is very familiar to some of you and very new to some of you. Genesis 3, 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, the serpent said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? Side note, God didn't say that. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent in response, We can eat of any fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you mustn't eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die the serpent said you won't certainly die the serpent said to the woman for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God knowing good and evil I thought they were like God the chapter before God himself said I've created you in my likeness and now the serpent is saying God doesn't want you to be like him and so follow me When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to her eye, also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree. And I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. <clears throat> I'm going to skip down to verse 21 and 22, because it's a comparison of what has come of humanity. If we were made in the image of God, whose image do we bear now? The Lord God, after all of this happened, made garments of skin, or animal skins, for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And the Lord God said... The man was like one of us. He knew good from evil. Let's pray. Our God, uh, I pray for your help tonight. We are people who have needs all around us. We have a need to have eyes to be able to even see you. We have a need to be able to hear your voice tonight and not just Ben's voice. We have a need to focus amidst distractions We have a need to still ourselves, however anxious and unquiet our insides were when we came in the room. We need you. And this passage is proof that you are a God who meets our needs. And so tonight, would you do it again? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. You can have a seat. There are some relational bombs that are so big and have such a powerful impact that it literally changes everything in your life. And you begin to judge time by pre this event happening and post this event happening. Throw out a couple of examples to stir your imagination. You gave your virginity to a guy or a girl who dumped you soon after. And now every day you feel worthless and invalidated and humiliated. You judge time now by pre, fill in the blank of their name, and post. Whatever name is. Or your parents' divorce, recent or way in the past, shook the last solid rocks you had to stand on, and now all of your life, every day, feels fragile, and you wonder what's going to break next, or how could I ever trust myself in a relationship? Or a relational bomb like somebody manipulated your trust when you were a kid, abused you, molested you took advantage of you, and shame covers you like a fog that never leaves, and you divvy up time pre that day and post that day. There's a lot of other examples, but sometimes something happens in our relationships that are so seismic and so powerful that it changes everything, and life is different forever, And this passage that I read isn't just another instance of that happening. This is the source of all of those other ripples that I just talked about. This is the volcano that's continually kind of spewing out this consuming fire that's eating us and eating our relationships. And so it's not just another instance of tragedy in our lives. It is the mother of all tragedies. And if you zoom out for a second and you look at, what's the big picture about what I just read? There's a ton we could say about it. There's very little we're going to say about it tonight. Very narrow point. If you zoom way out of Genesis 3, what you'll see is ultimately at the end of the day, this is a story about allegiances and loyalties. Who you most easily trust. Who you most effortlessly love. What is easiest for you to fall into in terms of relationships? We'll come back to that in a little bit and add a little flesh to the bone to to flesh that out. But last week, we spent a lot of time talking about the before the fall. What you were made for. Tonight we talk about the aftermath, the, the collateral damage, the place that all of us were born into, the kind of people we were born as. In the kind of environment that all of us are struggling to do relationship with. With God, with each other, with boyfriends and girlfriends, with parents, with myself. This is the, this is the post. This is the aftermath. This is what we call home now. This is the, the reason uh, we feel so frustrated in our relationships. Really quickly, the before was a place of intense harmony and being on the same page with everybody else. Can you imagine a time like that? You're on the same page, tightly wrapped around other people. Not in competition, not in one-upping each other, not in envy, not in gossip, not in putting people down, but in harmony, in music with one another, in a dance with one another. That's the way things were. And you know it because in your bones, you want that. We call it a soulmate. We call it a best friend. We call it the friend you're still looking for but have never found. That's what our hearts are still set on. It's like our hearts and emotions never got the memo that everything is broken and that we are broken. And they still have something original, something something from Genesis 1 in our hearts that are guiding us like a moth to a light to those kind of relationships. And you know painfully that this is gone That it's past. Thus the sadness. Thus the difficulty in our relationships. Really quickly to take a closer look at the passage and then to come back up for air and kind of talk about how this plays out in our lives. Why did this tragedy happen in the first place? I said it was about allegiances. Who you're loyal to. The way that this happened is a fourth character, someone beyond God, Adam and Eve, pops onto the scene. I said there's a lot we're not going to say about Genesis 2. Come up and talk to me after if you're wondering what in the world is going on with a talking serpent. Where did he come from? But the point is, the point of the story is a fourth character pops on the scene. And he begins to start standing at the edge of the dance floor between God and humanity in this perfect, intimate, face-to-face, naked relationship with each other. And now this creepy serpent dude shows up on the side of that dance floor and basically asks to cut in. And the way that he does that, the way he breaks up God from his people, is he starts to whisper a line that you've probably heard today, you've definitely heard this week, and we hear it weekly in our lives. And it goes like this. Wouldn't you be happier with someone else? Seems pretty basic. That's kind of the, the avenue of attack for the serpent. How he kind of plants a seed of doubt in Adam and Eve, in humanity, to leave the dance voluntarily that we shared with God. To leave that fellowship, to leave that face to face knowing God. He sits on the side and he whispers, Wouldn't you be happier with someone else? The way we hear that is, Wouldn't you be happier with a different girl? Different boyfriend, more sensitive, more thoughtful, expresses himself more. Maybe a girl that looks different or acts differently, better personality. Wouldn't you be happier if you left the person you're with? It's the grass is greener strategy. Wouldn't you be happier with a different roommate? NMSU knows most of you are thinking that and so they have something called the Roundup coming up in like two or three weeks. that provides for some great awkwardness. Because you can kind of like evict yourself from your room and just bail on your roommate without ever having to bring it up to them. And they come back one day and all your stuff's gone. And then you see them the rest of the year on campus and you're like, yeah, about that. I hate you and I wanted to move out. (laughs) But isn't this a familiar whisper? Wouldn't you be happier if you had different parents? You had a different personality yourself. For Adam and Eve, the stakes were higher because the whisper didn't say that. The whisper said, wouldn't you be happier if you had some other God? Some other master. To give you a sense of the outrage of what's happening here, what's happening in verses 1 through 6 is (coughs) the world's biggest affair. Happening before our eyes. And we're getting to kind of hear the thoughts, get an anatomy of of this person's emotions or their soul as they contemplate cheating on God, shifting loyalties and allegiances to someone else. If you believe what we said last week about the level, the height of the relationship human beings enjoyed with God, the idea that we would ever leave that, the idea that we would ever entertain the possibility that there could possibly be greener grass on the other side is outrageous and unthinkable. But outrageous, unthinkable things happen all the time. How many times have you heard someone who's been caught in an affair say afterwards, Why did I, everything I wanted in this affair I already had with my wife or my husband? Why did I squander everything? Why did I throw it all away? for this that turned out to be nothing. It's the whisper. It's tantalizing. It's alluring. It gets our attention. We listen to it. We follow it. Adam and Eve followed it. And it wasn't so much an allegiance shift from God to the devil or to the serpent. I'd suggest to you, the serpent is just a matchmaker. He's just the e-harmony saying, have I got a compatible partner for you? Guess who it is Adam and Eve It's you. You can be in a relationship with yourself. You can call all your own shots. You can go your own way. You can follow your heart. You don't have to answer to anybody. You don't have to question anybody. You don't have to doubt anybody. You can have it all. That's the match that the serpent was whispering. The happier relationship would be if you were in a relationship just with yourself. Have life your own way. And so... Let me kind of wrap up what I'm describing, what's going on kind of at a 30,000-foot at a, at a level. <coughs> what's happening is a shifting of allegiances. What's happening is an affair. It's outrageous in its proportion. And selfishness, self-centeredness, is surprise at the root of it all. So if that's what's, what happened on that day... Here is how it affects us today. Go back to the fresh thoughts in your mind. It's always coming out on social media. Another pastor, another person who's been caught in an affair. This Ashley Madison scandal that just burst out. Was it a million people or something? Or maybe 30 million people? who have Married people who have signed up to have affairs with other married people. And now the the names and the accounts are starting to be leaked. And, And more and more celebrities, more and more pastors, more and more people are saying... My name is on that list. I'm married. I have kids. I have a great life. But I went looking for all these other places. All these other people. And here's what all of them say after they caught, they're caught they caught. And this is almost in every movie. It's in every, pretty much any comedian's routine. This is the way it goes. You see, the person who cheated on the other person will come back and say, baby, I just wish things could be the way they were. They either say it flippantly or they say it incredibly emotionally. Their heart is all in it. Baby, if we could, I just want things to be the way they were. The problem with something of this magnitude and the problem with the kind of stuff that happens in your relationships is you can never undo it. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. We can't undo the stuff that happened. And so this is where we do life now, whether we like it or not. The first thing is this. I just want to rattle off a couple of implications or consequences of this kind of stuff. And we'll bring it back closer to home and wrap up. The first thing is this. We feel exposed after this shifting of allegiances, after this affair, after this trading loyalties, this betrayal. We feel exposed and dirty because we are exposed. And we get the sense that all of us are familiar with that being exposed would be a really, really bad thing, and so I never want it to happen to me. For two reasons. We don't want to be exposed because being exposed would let people see you the way you are, which would open you to condemnation or rejection. That makes sense, right? But also, being exposed for who you really are and where you really are would give other people control over you. Right? They would kind of hold your life, your value, your honor in the balance. And they could either bless you by bringing you in or curse you by sending you away. They could use that shameful information to wave it over your head. Use it to manipulate you or control you. And even if people don't talk this way to us or say it, we believe it. Here's where it gets even worse. If you believe the Bible... That humanity's problem is that we are most allegiant to ourselves at the expense of everything else. This means that the risk of exposure is unacceptable. If I am all about myself, if the void that used to be centered on the living God, the infinite God, now that this vacuum is created, and Ben is the only person that can fill it, Ben's desires, Ben's wants, Ben's dreams, Ben's wishes, what happens I begin to make all of you orbit around me. And I begin to be terrified that you'll ever find out who I really am. And so we do what Adam and Eve did. In our relationships, we get to work. We get to work. They, I don't know who taught them how to cover themselves, but somehow they become seamstress and they learn very quickly, I feel like I need to be covered to go out in public. I feel unpresentable. I feel in my bones unacceptable to other people and to God. And so, just to kind of continue in the delusion that life is all about me, I have to cover myself. This is, this is symbolic, this is literal. We cover ourselves with accomplishments. We cover ourselves with extroversion, with introversion, with our personalities. We go on the offense so that we never have to play defense in relationships. We control conversations, we keep it at small talk. We know how to have a conversation without ever revealing anything about ourselves or risking stumbling upon something real in another person. And we do it because we're scared of being exposed. We're scared of being seen hiding in a bush like our parents were. We can't risk being seen the way we are We cover ourselves in religious background. We say, I'm Catholic, or I'm Protestant, I'm Baptist. And we have all this churchy talk that we use at Bible studies to keep a smoke screen so that you can't really get to know what I'm really like, where I really am, what's really going on with me, or where I am with God. Does this make sense how we use words, we use relationships, personalities, pretty much anything we have access to becomes a tool in the service of hiding in plain sight. We still go to Bible studies, we still come to church, we still have lunch with friends, but we use those times to stay hidden because we're afraid of what happens if we get seen. Brennan Manning's a guy that wrote um, the Ragamuffin Gospel. I don't know if you've ever come across that book. This isn't from that, it's from another book, but he says, he's talking to some of his colleagues, and he says, brothers, I'm learning about myself. And he says, it's uncomfortable, even intolerable, to confront our true selves. And so, like runaway slaves, we either flee to our own reality, or we manufacture a false self, which is mostly admirable and superficially happy. We hide what we know or feel ourselves to be, which we assume to be unacceptable and unlovable. We hide it behind some kind of appearance which we hope will be more pleasing in your eyes. We hide behind pretty faces which we put on for the benefit of our audience, and in time we may even come to forget that we're hiding, and we think that our assumed pretty face is what we really look like. Does that resonate at all with you? How we are incredibly skilled in hiding in plain sight right before each other's eyes. Sometimes we get a glimpse of other people hiding. Sometimes we have a little burst of self-awareness where we're like, I'm hiding. I'm not being open about who I am or where I am because I'm ashamed. I feel like I have to cover myself. Brittany Manning is an old, old Christian man. And in his old age, this is what he's saying I still feel the urge to run and hide. I can't present who I really am because something deep in me says, Who I really am is unacceptable, and I can't let you see it. And so we fear exposure because we have been exposed. We feel guilty because we are guilty. This little show, this little act that we perform, now begins to pull God into the mix too. It's not just that you and I are in each other's audiences that we're hiding from, but now we begin to hide from God too. It's interesting—they first hide from each other. The first exposure or insecurity or shame that Adam and Eve feel is horizontal. They they see the eyes of the other, and they feel like I got to get out of here. Then, give them enough time to make their coverings, they hear God. And the thought of God is a terrifying thought for the first time in human history. And they hide as if you can hide from God. They seek shelter away from God, not in Him like they did 30 minutes before and forever all the time that they were alive before then. We feel guilty because we are guilty. We hide from God because we don't know what He'll do with our guilt. The third and final thing I wanted to draw attention to is that we minimize what's really going on. You see this when they start blaming each other. God's, God confronts them. He shows up in person. They hide from him and he says, where are you? They come out and they begin to say, Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent. They both blame God. What's happening there isn't just blame shifting and scapegoating. What's happening there is they're minimizing the seriousness of what happened. They don't want their relationship problems to be as, as big and as bad as these allegiance and loyalty issues. What their hearts are most attached to. Because that is an unsolvable problem for a human being. They would rather the problem be fixable and solvable themselves. And so, a problem you can fix is if it's someone else's fault. You get to run free. If it's, if it's some other little minor problem or circumstantial problem that makes you be the way you are, that's fixable. That's avoidable. And so this blaming is actually a way that we set out to work at fixing ourselves. If you want to know how all these three things come together in real life? Um, here's a story that might put a little picture to this. This is all ten years ago when I was in college. I, uh, I led a Bible study and. Each year that we did this Bible study, we talked about this passage. And I got to a point of realizing, man, I don't feel the full impact of this passage. And all the people that are in this Bible study, I get the sense that they don't take this as seriously as we should either. I don't. We feel like the fall was a fall from three feet up. It scuffed us up a little bit and makes life a little bit difficult, but it's still fixable. So I set out, I'm trying to like, how do I illustrate the impact of what happened and how complicated the brokenness is. And so I hatched this plan to go to Goodwill. And I go on the grandma aisle where all of those clay sculptures are of like Jesus praying or like a bird like on a flower or something. And I found something big enough to like produce a lot of mess. So I got this big sculpture, like clay sculpt, ceramic sculpture of a dog. And believing what I believe about how far the Bible says we fell, I got home, took a few crow hops. And I launched this thing up in the air. And about two or three seconds later, when this sucker lands, it shatters into about a hundred pieces. And then, because I believe what the Bible says, that our attempts to piece back together our relationships cause more damage, I then proceeded to stomp on all of the pieces that were still there. Then I got a broom, swept everything up, and at this point I pretty much have a bowl full of sand. <laughs> they're like pulverized. And the, the next night at Bible study I put this thing on the table and I asked one of the engineering guys because they're the only uh, people who are dumb enough to offer to put this thing back together. I say, who can put this thing back together again and tell me what this is? And the pieces were just big enough that you, you're, te- you're teetering right on the, right on the verge of could I do this or is it impossible? I would never even give it a try. Maybe I'm lazy, but uh, the the people that I asked to do it always gave it a try. It got a little weird having a Bible study sit there and watch them try to do something that would take hours. So they would all tell me, Ben, give give me tonight or give me a couple of days and we'll come back next week and this thing will be glued back together. Here's what this is a picture of. The industriousness of broken human beings and the delusion of you and me. Actually believing that we can fix our relationships with each other, especially between us and our maker. It's laughable. It's silly when you hear the story of what I just told you. It's not silly when it's the thing that's producing the pain, the confusion, the stubborn stuckness that you've been in for years and don't know how you can get out of. Could it be a place where you are trying to fix you? Could it be a place where you've got a bowl full of sand and you're trying to put Humphrey Yang back together again? And you're exhausted, you're cynical, you're hopeless and you're stop you stop trying because you're beginning to think the task is impossible, but you're failing to see where this passage ends. We'll get there in just a second, but let this image linger on you. Is it true that we are people, hiding in bushes from each other and from God, with as many broken pieces of our lives and our relationships that we can find, we kind of go back to our refuge and we try to piece ourselves together, cover ourselves, and then we say, ta-da, I'm here. And the way this comes out is you say, Hey, Ben, how are you doing tonight? Good. Catch it? It's called a facade. None of us are always good as often as we say we're doing good. Today's been a weird day for me. Today's not been a great day. Preparation for this hasn't gone very well. There's been a lot of distractions during the talk. So if you ask me, some of you asked me how I'm doing today, and I said, today's been weird, and I'm ready for the day to be over because of this what frees me to be weak and broken what frees me to not be a speaker who dazzles you every week what frees me to come out of my hiding and to be to show you that i'm not put together and that my life falls apart as much as your life falls apart what frees me to tell you that i get confused What frees you, what frees me to when you confess your sin for me to nod and say, me too? The gospel is what frees me to do that. Here's where we see it in this passage. Where is God on the scene here? In the places you're stuck with your friends, your parents, yourself, you're waiting on someone to make the first move. The God of the Bible shows himself to be a God who always makes the first move. He always initiates. He always shows up where you are. This is a God who knows your coordinates. This is a God who doesn't get lost. The reason God comes to Adam and says, where are you, isn't because God is lost and doesn't know where his little future is. The reason he asks, where are you, is because Adam doesn't know where Adam is. And the reason God asks you, where are you? Isn't because he doesn't know where you are. It's because you don't know where you are. And the good news is if you can hear God's voice asking you, where are you? Why are you hiding? Who told you? Who taught you how to be ashamed? If you hear his voice, you know he's near. That is the hope in this passage. Not you fixing yourself. Not you retreating to the bushes all the time in your Bible studies on Tuesday nights at church when you get back home to your parents. On Facebook, on Instagram, only presenting the fixed covering of you. But a God who comes and pursues you. A God who always seeks those who always hide. That is good news. And a God who remembers what you were like is a God who can put you back together. That's what he says in verse 21 and 22. You were like me. And now you're like an animal. But God sets out from that moment forward, taking the first move, taking initiative to remake you into his image. If you know anything about the Bible verses are probably exploding in your head about being conformed into the image of Christ, being transformed into the image, being made alive again. That is what God has set out to do, and He's met you in your bush, in your shame, in your fear, in your guilt, with all of who He is and all that He has. This isn't the only time God has made the first move. The cross is the clearest picture of a God who initiates, who says, I know what you're really like. I know you're guilty. I know you're ashamed. I know you're hiding. And I have come to free you, to leave the darkness, and to learn to live again in you. That's what this is about. Next week we'll take a a, a week to look at a passage that gets a lot closer to home of why relationships can still be so confusing and so hard in this. But let's pray with what we've talked about tonight, that God would bring it home to us in a deeper way. Father, we thank you that you are a God who has not left us alone. But you are the one who said it is not good that the man is alone. And so when we went and hid by ourselves alone, you still come and meet us there because you still believe it's not good for us to be alone. And so, through Jesus, you are putting the pieces back together again. You are reconciling all broken things through Him, to yourself. Would you persuade us tonight that this is true? And would changes begin to happen tomorrow in our conversations where we would begin to be people who tell the truth about ourselves, who stop lying to each other, who stop pretending? We stop only putting pictures up on our good days, but being terrified to put pictures up on our depressed days. God, would you free us? Would you free us through Jesus, we pray. Amen.